Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 314. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. They're celebrating their 10th anniversary with a show at LPR, Le Poisson Rouge, in New York City on October 11th. And through October 11th, if you're a listener of the Jazz Session, you can get 50% off any purchase at respectsextet.bandcamp.com. Respectsextet.bandcamp.com. Just go there and use the offer code TJS, the initials of the Jazz Session, to get 50% off any purchase there. And please do go to their show on October 11th if you're in the New York area. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show. You'll find it at allaboutjazz.com. And if you want to put a widget that All About Jazz created for this show on your own website, let me know and I will tweet about it. No, I won't tweet about it. I will write about it. Everything is Twitter now. I don't even know the verbs for things that aren't tweeting. I will write about it in my newsletter, which goes out uh, each Monday. In fact, I think the latest person to do that was Nico Sofiato, who's been on this show and as a wonderful guitar player, and you should check him out. You can go to thejazzsession.com and look in the archives along the left-hand side, and you'll find Nico Sofiato and the other 313 people who've been on the show. This show is member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please do become a member. You can do that for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year if you want to pay all at once. And there are membership levels that go on up from there. For $50 a month or $500 a year, you'll be an official sponsor, and you'll be mentioned on every single show, just like the folks I mentioned at the top of this show. Today's guest is the saxophonist Marcus Strickland. His brother E.J. Strickland is a drummer, and he's been on the show before. You'll find him in the archives. Marcus has a new double album out called Triumph of the Heavy, Volumes 1 and 2. It's part live album and part studio album, the live album with his trio and the studio album with the same trio and the addition of a piano player. Uh, both albums are excellent, and as a matter of fact, just a couple days ago, I saw his uh, CD release party at LPR, the same place I mentioned that Respect is playing, uh, and it was great. There were some wonderful special guests. Jaleel Shaw played alto sax on a tune, and there were some tap dancers, and uh, it was very cool. So uh, Marcus, as I said, has a new double album, and we'll hear the first track on the first CD. Here we go. This is a long time coming. Is saxophonist Marcus Strickland. It's great to have you on the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, and my apologies. We tried to do this more than once before, and uh, for various reasons, it never quite happened. And I'm super happy to have you here. Yeah. And it, I think in a lot of ways, it was worth the wait because it seems like this record marks for you kind of a turning point. Uh, oh, definitely, man. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's it's definitely 
a point where, you know, I'm, I'm looking back and I'm like, wow, I, I actually have a track record now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm kind of used to doing this and, you know, maybe I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, yeah. So that's a, that's an interesting point in, in somebody's career. So, uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a milestone. Yeah, the album is uh, Triumph of the Heavy, uh, Volumes 1 and 2, as it apply, implies. It's a, a two-CD set, studio and live. And can you talk about what, why you made that decision to release both a studio recording and a live record? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, uh, I, I think it's just like the last time. Um, uh, basically, I was in a transitional period. Uh, whenever I'm in a transitional period, I'm basically writing for two bands. <laughs> and... Um, and the output is, uh, much greater than, uh, my, my need for releases. So, uh, you know, then I end up with two records, <laughs> uh, worth of music of material that I want to get out immediately because I know that by the time they get out, I'll be on to the next thing. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, and so what were you transitioning kind of from and to in this sense? Oh, uh, I was transitioning from, uh, back from the trio to the quartet because i you know that's where i started that was that was home for me uh years back and uh i i had been on the trio binge for for a while like maybe since 2008 i i've been uh uh doing trio and loving it uh i've always uh craved the the openness and the, the space of it and uh uh towards uh Toward, uh, after, after, shortly after doing this, uh, Firehouse 12 gig, which is, uh, you know, the live recording that Volume 2, uh, uh, is, uh, has on it. Um, shortly after that performance, I was like, wow, man, I, you know, I'm really loving the interaction and everything. When I, you know, I was starting to hear, uh, how I could place the piano within that. Um, certain things that I could do, you know, rhythmically, uh, you know, just specify some rhythms and stuff like that, that could really, uh, fit in there and fit well. And, uh, and I already had, by that time, I already had an idea of who I wanted to use because, um, uh, I did a trip to Portugal, like maybe a year before that. <laughs> and, uh, they, they asked me to bring a quintet so that we could, you know, coach this big band. And I, I brought David Bryant up, um, who I'd heard play my brother's music at that point. And, uh, and I heard him on my music. I was like, wow, man, this guy is, he's really open to, to what's going on. And he, he really has the, the sensibility that's, that's needed to, to fit into like a very interactive, uh, group. Uh, you know, he, he has the selflessness and, uh, and also, uh, the provocativeness that that really really fit into uh what i was hearing for the next quartet so that's why he's on the record <laughs> Thank you. 
do you think that you needed the space of the trio to figure out in your own head how the piano would function once you added? I think it did. I think it really helped with that. Um, uh, playing in that format, in, in the trio format for as long as I did, uh, really made me aware of how, uh, how the listener works, you know? Like, uh, I noticed that solos were, were listened to much more in depth because there wasn't too much noise behind the solos. And also, uh, with all the openness, uh, you have a choice to immediately try to fill it up or let it play its role, um, which is to, to, uh, bring attention to the, to the interesting things that, that you hopefully do <laughs> in your solo. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, re- it was really a, a great learning experience. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if I go back there again <laughs> sometime. Uh, but I, you know, I, by the time, um, by the time the year finished, you know, I did the trio record in, uh, in the spring of 2010. And by the time fall came around, I was hearing a whole batch of other songs, like albums worth of songs were written, um, on this one tour that I did with Dave Douglas. We were doing all, a bunch of train rides. And for some reason, whenever I got on the train, bam, <laughs> it just went <laughs> off. <laughs> Everything just started clicking. Uh, so, you know, you know, January pulls up, uh, 2011. I'm like, man, let's put this stuff down. You know, I, I really wanted to put it down. And, um, and, uh, while, while we were prepping for that, I, I realized I was like, man, this is going to be another double record. And, uh, and I, I thought that would be a, a great, uh, a great presentation. Um, just two totally different processes um uh one uh being a, a group that has been touring for for years and uh has gotten very used to 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 each other and is so natural on the stage and um and one of our best performances actually uh live in front of an audience that's like one of the volumes and then the other volume is is music that we just started reading uh and uh we're in the studio without an audience uh we have the you know the luxury of taking more <laughs> takes than one uh you know it's a different kind of energy um but i i think both are are just as valid as each other a lot of people love to compare both volumes to each other they're just different <laughs> right they're just different and that's the whole point of it um and uh yeah i i really i really enjoyed making this project it's interesting because although the music on the first volume is new to the band mm-hmm. and there's one one new player mm-hmm. that the foundation of that trio is still very much there i mean you can exactly. feel you can yeah. feel the comfort yeah that allows that you know the new music to be approached in a very i guess kind of comfortable confident way because everyone knows what to expect from everyone else i guess maybe with the exception of david who's yes exactly yeah it's it was a it was a great um it was a great building block for for what we have now uh you know and uh i you know when whenever i find uh you know a group of people who really work well together i just hold on to that uh as tight as i can you know uh eventually you know things will probably change but you know i i really i really do uh appreciate um the uniqueness of you know the you know the all the sums of the of the of of this quartet you know the, everybody brings something like very very special and and important to the group um yeah it's amazing man we did, i mean the last performance we did was at 92y tribeca and uh that was actually caught um uh that was uh, actually re- recorded and uh and I was like wow man <laughs> imagine doing a, a live record with the quartet <laughs> I'm already thinking of that <laughs> that's right and then there'll be a yeah. second volume of that that's the quintet <laughs> exactly <record>. right <laughs> I'm starting grow, to see grow. how you work <laughs> 10 years exactly. from now we'll be here talking about your orchestra <laughs> exactly 40 piece orchestra record yeah <laughs> Thank you. 
You mentioned that while you were taking all these train rides during the Dave Douglas tour, you were feeling inspired to write. And is that because of, are you being inspired by things that surround you, by experiences you're having on the tour, by just things that are popping into your head, all of that, all of the above? I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just all of, all of the above. Um, when I first moved to New York, I found myself uh, kind of forcing myself to write. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, because of that, I learned how to write. And also I learned, um, I, I, you know, I, I developed my, my, my own style, I think, uh, through those years. But now I think it's much, much, a much more natural process. Um, usually in the spring, <laughs> that's when things get clicking for some reason. Um, I don't know if it's the season or not, but this time, it was the fall and, and it just, uh, it just spilled through me. I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't help it. A lot of times it's, uh, it might be because of, um, uh, whatever I'm working on at, at the given moment. Um, I think, uh, at the, at the given moment, I was working a lot on the, um, the, the technical side of the saxophone. Um, you know, I, you know, as I, you know, just grow and grow with along with this instrument. I just get more and more involved in the scientific side of it. You know, just get more and more fascinated with with the instrument and the the miraculous uh, uh, events that happen just to just to create a sound and why the sound is so much larger than most woodwinds and you know. Uh, so you know, I I added the alto to my arsenal and everything, and I was working on the soprano, the alto and tenor all at the same time and playing to drones and, um, you know, just really trying to get familiar with the instrument. And, uh, you know, for some reason I started just hearing harmony again in the music. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it all just, it all just, uh, came together, you know, uh, maybe somebody said a joke or I, you know, there might've been, uh, a joke that, uh, Gene, Gene Lake, who plays drums with, uh, Dave Douglas, he might have referred to Richard Pryor as he always does. <laughs> he always acts like, uh, this particular character, Mudbone. And, uh, I was going to ask if that yeah. was Pryor. Because I figured it had exactly. to be. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he, he might have been doing that while I was writing this particular tune. And, and then from that point on, the tune became about trying to make it, the, like the most fun tune to play and that's that's exactly what the intent was to to write that tune There's a lot of things in what you just said that I want to ask about. Uh, one, and I don't know if this is a silly question or not, but you said that in the past that you've mostly composed in the spring, and this time it was in the fall. Do you notice any difference in character between the music that you wrote? In those yeah, yeah. I um, 
I remember uh, uh, a great writer uh, by the name of Angelica Beener. She was she was uh, telling me that. It was She's a writer of music or a writer of. Uh, oh, she she has her her own blog. Okay. Yeah, and um, uh, she she was uh, she was saying that the the music sounded darker. You know, there was a darker quality to it. You could definitely hear that on the second track on. Um, what is it called? Oh, Za Raula. And, um, you know, that, that song is about um, the a full lunar eclipse. And uh, I wrote it on that day. <laughs> uh, the first um, full lunar eclipse uh, in, I think, over 540 years. You know, we have lunar eclipses all the time, but the full, first full one, that was, uh, it's been a while <laughs> since that, <laughs> I think a few generations passed since that. So, uh, I thought, I thought it, it was important to, to, to get out my, uh, writing tools <laughs> sure. on that day. And where does that title come from? Uh, Zaraula is, is a mythical, uh, Tibetan creature that, uh, has nine heads, the top one being that of an eagle <laughs> and it has, uh, several arms and it's, I think, I'm not sure if, if it literally means the obstructor, but that's basically what, what they mean by it. And uh, that was kind of the, um, that was the symbol of uh, the lunar eclipse. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I found all this stuff out when I was like just looking it up, you know, just the, the whole phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were also mentioning that you were getting more into the, the physics and the physical properties of your mm -hmm. instrument. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What that means for you? Sure. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's noticeable to 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 most people, but my sound got much thicker <laughs> on this record, uh, and that's because uh, I've been doing uh, some some research into overtones, um, which is basically. Uh, making the horn uh basically closing all the holes on the horn so that you, basically it's it doesn't have any any holes no no keys no nothing it's just a piece of metal <laughs> <laughs> and then you manipulate the the piece of metal uh with your airstream so that you can make different pitches without lifting fingers and uh changing the the size of the horn okay so um as you can see, that sounds very complicated. <laughs> um, you you have to really have control of your your own body. Your own body becomes more of the instrument than than the piece of metal itself. So, uh, you know, going going through that process and really uh, getting in tune with that, um, it really created like a like a more full sound. And I was like, okay. So that's why Cannonball had the, right. that awesome sound. That's why his sound was so much thicker than everybody else. Cause he, he really got into the, uh, into the overtone series and everything. And so, uh, yeah, I, I did stuff like that. And, uh, is that something you do so that, uh, so that it just becomes ingrained in your playing? Not something you mm -hmm. actually do in the moment, yeah. but something that just becomes part of your sound? Yeah. It, it definitely becomes, it, it teaches you, uh, how to uh efficiently move air through the instrument and it it gives you more control of your body um and uh basically uh you you start playing the saxophone more than the saxophone's playing you right. <laughs> so uh it's you know it's it's just a it's a very efficient way of mastering the instrument and getting uh control over it and you also said uh, that you had added uh, alto this time out. I know you're playing it in alto mm -hmm. by the, the P. Moriat company, right? Which I had actually sure. never heard of until James Carter was on the show, and he mentioned yeah. that he's playing them too. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and the decision to add alto? Yeah, I um, for for a long time, maybe since the uh, the trilogy Kenny Garrett record. Back in 1996, I believe. Yeah, let's, let's, let's not think about that, Chuck. <laughs> I think I'm you like, meant what? to say 2006. <laughs> it's like it's making me feel old, right? Just thinking about it. Man. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I went to IJE um, that year, 
Um, and that's the year that I met Robert Glasper, Mike Moreno, um, just a whole bunch of uh, musicians that, that are on the scene today and just killing it. Um, Walter Smith, I met him for the first time there. Um, and Kenny Garrett was there with his trio. Um, it wasn't the same trio on the record. It was, it was Nat Reeves on bass and Jeff Tane Watts on drums. <laughs> That's okay. Though. Jeff had that huge <laughs> afro at the time. And, uh, they got up there and just shut the thing down, man. It was, you know, I, I fell in love with the alto when I heard that, you know, uh, the reason that I switched from alto, uh, to tenor, uh, early on when I was about 14 years old was because most of the people I was listening to were tenor players and to hear the alto approached basically like a tenor player. <laughs> um, that really brought me, brought me back to the alto. I was like, Oh, okay. You could do that with an alto. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of fell in love with the alto again. And I, I'd had a, this secret love affair with the alto while playing the tenor uh for years and years and um uh you know but I never really I never really uh uh did anything about it until I got the uh the endorsement when I got endor the endorsement the first thing I asked them was give me an alto <laughs> <laughs> you know they're like but do you play alto I I started on I do I'll now. play the, I'll play it now <laughs> yeah so uh as soon as I got an instrument, I just started shedding it. And, um, and actually that's probably what brought on the, uh, the more, uh, in depth, um, approach to, to the instrument was, you know, I was trying to find the most efficient way to become familiar with this new instrument. <laughs> um, it has the same kinds of keys. It has the same similar shape as the tenor. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's, it's a totally different instrument. The, the bell starts at a different point in the tube and the tube is shorter and, you know, there's different into intonation problems than with the tenor. Uh, it's a whole, it's a whole array of, uh, of, uh, different circumstances that you have. So the best way to get familiar with that was to really get in touch with that, you know, the, the overtones and manipulating the airstream, uh, you know, really getting familiar with the instrument. So, you know, that's what brought that on. And, and it made my, my tenor playing and my out, my soprano playing much better. Just, uh, you know, it, it, it inspired a whole new wave of shedding, <laughs> yeah. basically. of hearing Kenny Garrett play that he approached the alto like a tenor and I think maybe for a lot of casual listeners mm -hmm. that, that difference is lost on people what, yeah. what that means how, how those instruments are typically approached yeah. and we're going to have to generalize to talk about this but yeah. can you say something about that? Yeah I um, I mean it's, it's I'm definitely speaking in a very general way but um, 
I've I've noticed that the language of uh, of alto players is uh, it has there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, intricate um, and uh, harmonically driven lines with alto players. Tenor players, it's it's hard to put this in layman's term <laughs> because I'm so used to speaking in, to musicians. Sure, but um, with tenor players, I feel like it's a more um, it's more about intervals, the space between the notes, rather than um, the notes and their relationship to the piano. You know, uh, <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> explain that so simply. It's there's a different language that's going on. Maybe because of where the piano is usually comping, uh, they're usually comping around the tenor range. Uh, um, they they may do some other experimentation with low register or high register, but right in the middle, that's where they they mostly are. So I think a lot of times uh, uh, tenor players are hearing. Uh, stuff that's, uh, that doesn't clash too much with what's the, what the piano's doing. And, uh, as opposed to, uh, an alto player who's a little bit further up and playing stuff that's on top of what the piano player is doing. And, uh, soprano's even further. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's very hard for me to really pinpoint exactly what it is, but it's, it's like when I hear an alto player, who's a bona fide alto player, I know it. <laughs> right. It's like it's a certain language that goes along with that instrument. And uh, same with a tenor player. Um, so, you know, the, it's a, it's just a fascinating thing just to, just to see how, you know, just the sheer length of the instrument, you know, changes like that uh, can change the approach to the instrument and, you know, how it, uh, how it uh, all fits over uh, the ensemble and everything. So, yeah, I, you know, I guess that's the best way I can explain it. <laughs> do you think it has anything to do with who some of the keystone figures were on those instruments? Like the difference between somebody coming up playing alto mm -hmm. and listening to Charlie Parker yeah. versus somebody coming up in that same era and listening to Lester Young or Coleman Hawkins. I mean, those are very different. That would actually worlds probably be a more, a more simple and probably a more factual way of, uh, of explaining it, you know, uh, yeah, the, a lot of uh, the alto players, they they stem from uh, cats like Charlie Parker um, and uh, Cannonball Adderley and um, also Johnny Hodges. Uh, you know, it's, it's there's a certain language that comes out of that. Um, whereas, uh, you know, tenor players were, you know, were listening to like Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, Coltrane, Joe Henderson, Sonny Rollins. Um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, all these people definitely play different than each other, but there's definitely like a tenor clan <laughs> kind of thing and an alto clan kind of thing. And, uh, when I, when I heard that, that concert by Kenny, I, I heard the, the marriage of the two, you know, so it, it really, it really got me thinking, you know, yeah, I like the alto. <laughs> yeah. I really like the alto, so. Yeah, and true. in your own playing, are you using the at this point the three different horns, soprano, alto, and tenor, to represent different parts of your musical personality, or are you trying to have kind of the same approach across the three different sounds? I think uh, I think basically the horn, the horn and its parameters, um, you know the you know where it fits. Uh, sonically, it kind of it kind of instructs me on on the compositions that I write. Um, <clears throat> so there will be um, a certain melody that I'm hearing in my head, and based on based on how I'm singing it, you know what register I'm singing it in, and also what timbre I want that register to sound like. Um, Are there specific one... examples on this record, for example, that oh, kind definitely. of lend to what you're talking about? Definitely. Uh, I would say, uh, oh, there's, there's the song, A World Found.
So um, there's uh, there's a whole lot of harmony going on, especially at the beginning. Uh, there's all these clusters going on in the piano, very dense clusters. I didn't want to uh, get mixed up in that with the melody. I wanted the melody to soar above that. So I chose to use the soprano because it sits right on top of uh, all those uh, dense harmonies that I wrote uh, underneath. And those harmonies are basically uh, representing, like I, I wanted it to feel like like a new Pangea almost. Sure. <laughs> that's, that's the name of the, the song. So that's, you know, the clusters and everything, I, I feel they kind of represent like a, like a jungle feeling, like this new tropical planet that <laughs> nobody's been to or something like that. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, all that, all that stuff goes into my choices of the instrument. And, um, you know, so it, it, it lends, uh, each lend to each other, the, the composition and the, the instrument, uh, they they lend to each other. Um, once I knew I wanted it to be on soprano, it instructed me on how to compose the rest of the song. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and uh, and also uh, um, lately I've been doing a lot of intervallic things on the soprano, going uh, leaping from the lowest note to the highest note um, in a single bound, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. So that, that's, um, also been reflected in my compositions too. You know, uh, that, that song surreal has some of that in there. Um, and also Don. Yeah. Sure. I think we've gone this far without actually mentioning the names of the rest of the band. Oh, on okay, yeah. So you should <laughs> Definitely, yeah. correct that before you get in yeah, trouble with your friends sure. and your relatives. We'll start with EJ. <laughs> Cause that's where it all started. Um, this guy was there from the beginning. Uh, when I first started learning music, he was there. I'll just make sure people learning. know this is your brother, EJ Strickland. This is my twin brother, EJ yep. Strickland. Um, we were there at the same time learning the music. Um, and he was playing trombone at first <laughs> uh, because of the... The band director wanted him to play trombone, but uh, he was very, <laughs> my brother's very stubborn, and eventually he's like, I want to play the drums. <laughs> and eventually he got on the drum set, and and um, and I, I was always on alto. I think I was instructed to play clarinet, and I was like, no, I'm playing. <laughs> I'm going to play the saxophone. Um, Sounds like he's not the only stubborn one. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and I paid for that later on when I tried to go from saxophone to clarinet. Right. Not an easy transition. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, we we played duo together for a long time. We would play standards, and I would try to make sense of uh, – I would try to make sense of what little resources I had. I didn't have any keyboard behind me. I didn't have a bass. I just had the drums <laughs> myself. And so I think that's a lot that those formative years really created who I am as a musician today. I am the most rhythm rhythmic saxophone player <laughs> you could think of. It's like I, you know, I'm thinking drums. I'm not thinking what cool lick I could play over this harmony. <laughs> I'm thinking how does this relate to the drums? And uh, that's a part of my sound. So I, I thank EJ for that. And, uh, and also he's just an incredible drummer. Um, amazing. Uh, all kinds of polyrhythms coming at you, but in the most tasteful way. And, uh, and also he can, he, he really knows how to orchestrate a piece. You know, uh, I'll, I'll have so many thoughts of what the drums are going to sound like on the, on the composition. And he'll, he'll just get the composition and, and play. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I was. <laughs> Yeah, forget what I was thinking about. <laughs> and uh yeah, so that's EJ for you. Um uh incredible. Uh and then we have Ben Williams, um otherwise known as B dub. <laughs> um it's, uh he's a very talented individual. Um the first time I heard him play was uh a gig with uh this trumpeter named uh Kenyatta Beasley. We were doing a gig and, um, everybody in the room was dancing, <laughs> dancing around and everything. And, uh, I think that was because of the, the hard groove that Ben was laying down. Uh, he's just funky <laughs> and he dances with the bass. I don't know if you ever seen him play live. He dances with the bass, you know, 
like it's this woman or something. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, it's a he he's very very funky, very creative, um, and he is just as strong as a soloist as anybody else in the band. And that's that's exactly what I want. So uh, <laughs> that's why I chose him. And in terms mm. of the trio, uh, did you mm. did you already know that he and your brother would be a good fit together, or did you experiment to see if that was going to happen? Oh, definitely. Um, from that from that gig uh, that I did with Kenyatta Beasley on, like I I craved uh, that kind of comfort when I play. You know, they they fit together very well. I really enjoyed that. So, um, you know, so I, I was like, man, I got to feel like that again. <laughs> I got to get these two guys in the rhythm section. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, this is going to have happened just a couple of days before this show, despite how little time there is between this interview and when the show yeah. airs. Yeah. But in between them, you're doing uh, a CD release gig here in New York. And I wonder uh, what you expect from the music that's on the studio side of this album as you're playing it live. Is it going to get a chance to... Have you had another life to stretch out to see oh, what else? Oh, definitely. Is there? Uh, it's it's already starting to starting to to morph, and that's the that's the beauty of this music. Um, we're not playing the same exact set every night. There, there's some musicians I know from friends of mine. They they go on tour with like pop stars, and it's a great thing, great exposure and everything, cool, you know. But they play the same exact set every single night. <laughs> so. Uh, when I think of that and when I when I talk to my friends uh who who are in that situation, I just appreciate more and more the fact that this music just it has the chance to to develop, to change. Um as and, and we get we get to grow into the music and the music grows too. So uh, you know, I, I really yeah, I, I'm already starting to experience like different versions of of these songs and uh you know i definitely encourage it you <laughs> know uh you know I, I i think on the last gig we were playing uh the song uh surreal uh david bryant he he did this this wonderful development of the melody uh on the price is right <laughs> he, he just did it so tastefully man <laughs> And it swung so hard, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, I, I really love that. Well, you know? I guess that is surreal when you come right exactly. down. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. How Can you talk a little bit about how much uh, kind of room you leave in your compositional structures for contributions by the other players? Oh, yeah, definitely. I um, uh, I would I would imagine that for that for most bass players, they would kind of find my my approach more constricting because they have a, an actual part instead of just um, chord progressions to which With they slash would, marks or whatever. Yeah, they, exactly. Right, yeah. They, you know, they don't get to uh, really make up um, their own line uh, beneath the melody. But by the time the solos come, you know, they have the freedom to do what they want. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that's a, that's an that's more interesting than just playing uh chords they have like a sp certain rhythm to play uh that interacts with the drums with interacts with everybody um it's funky <laughs> so uh you know i you know i that's that's basically my approach with the bass i i i, I like to create some funk <laughs> between the drummer and the and the bass um and with uh you know, I I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of specific things that I want on the melody because I, it's very strong sound in in my head. Uh, so if there's any instruction, it's on you know it's on that part. But uh, after that, <laughs> they could go to town and, right. and do whatever they want. <laughs> but it sounds like uh, in terms of the the heads of these. Mm pieces that you you really do have a a vertical approach i mean the whole the whole ensemble as a score yeah. defined characteristics for each player definitely yeah. yeah yeah definitely and um you know i i i really uh i really thank wayne shorter for being the the great composer he is he's really 
made a, a big impression on me compositionally and as a player. Uh, and, you know, with his compositions, what I feel is that there's all kinds of very interesting and interest, intricate, um, harmonies going on. Uh, but that's underneath and what, what he, I, I feel what's most important to him is to have the most haunting, <laughs> memorable, singable melody above that. Um, the melody of his songs normally is in one key. And there's all kinds of key shifts and, and abnormal key shifts at that going on beneath that. And, uh, you know, that, I think that's a big, very big influence on my compositional style. Um, you know, one of the things that I, one of the things that I do to myself is I restrict myself, <laughs> uh, by not com composing the melody on the horn. Uh, I compose the melody by singing it. <laughs> and, uh, that keeps it, uh, lyrical. You know, there might be a time here or there that I, that I'll compose the melody on the, on the horn, but mo for the most part, it's something that, that I can sing. Cause and I, yeah. I have want... you written things that way that, that are then a challenge for you to play? Definitely. Um, there's, uh, there's been some, some interval leaps that are easier to sing or, <laughs> or maybe it's in a weird register of the horn, you know, and, you know, so it's, it goes both ways, you know, <laughs> yeah. Does uh, does that that kind of Wayne Shorter model that you're talking about with the uh, the kind of easy to digest melodic line over all this really complex shifting harmony? Does the melodic line in that case almost make it easier to like sneak in that shifting harmony so the listener doesn't necessarily even notice really consciously that all that strange stuff is going on down there because the melody's so easy to integrate into their ear? Definitely, it's uh you know and it's uh. I, I think it's a very, I think it's, it's, it's something in, in the hierarchy of the, of the whole thing. Melody is just, it just rules for me. You know, it's, uh, if I, if I can't sing the melody, if it, if it's not memorable or if I can't really connect to it or there's no recurring, uh, theme or anything, I'm, I'm feeling like, is this, a song or is it an improvisation or or a concerto or something you know like i i really i'm really big on on themes um i think that's something that's uh that sometimes gets overlooked um by modern uh jazz musicians uh get so caught up in in making something that's in uh impressive rather than in impressionable <laughs> um you know, they, they want to impress all the other saxophonists that are in the audience with how fast they could play or how many notes they can play. But yet, um, there's, there's a, there's, there's, there's somebody in the audience wondering, like, is this the solo or 
the melody, what's going on here, you know? Right. And um, I think I think it's important to to understand that we are we are playing for people here. Uh, it doesn't make sense for us to play for each other as musicians, you know. It's like preaching to a choir. We're trying to. Um, I well, I can just speak for me. I think my my whole intent is to reach um, others than myself. You know, I I consider musicians. We we all speak the same language, but I want it uh, on the other side of the filter. I want there to be something that touches, uh, you know, normal people. <laughs> and I don't say that to as as them being boring or anything. I just mean uh, people who are not. Uh, in touch with music the way that I am. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two things I want to bring up in reaction to that. The first is, uh, before we started recording this interview, I was mentioning that on my walk over here, I was listening to Stevie Wonder. I was listening to Intervisions, and you were saying that mm-hmm. if you start collecting vinyl, it's going to be all that great 70s Stevie mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is another kind of Wayne Shorter-esque example of mm-hmm. a guy who could put the most amazingly singable melody exactly, over yeah. the craziest sets of harmonies exactly. that are happening under him. perfect example of that. Perfect example. There's this... Uh, he, he kind of... He kind of brought the, uh, he brought, he brought some very slick stuff to, to R&B. Um, you know, R&B used to be about one, five, one, four. <laughs> you know, you might get a six up in there. <laughs> uh, you know, but he started bringing some other, uh, um, harmonic progressions in there that were, uh, that are reminiscent of, of, you know, hard bop, uh, jazz. Um, but yet it was still funky. <laughs> it was yeah. still funky. And that shows you, it shows you the power of, of rhythm and melody. You know, that's, that's just, that's, that's the, the highest plateau of, you know, in hierarchy for me, for, for music. I, you know, I gotta have some rhythm, some melody in there, you know, <laughs> all the other stuff, you know, that, that comes second to that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he seemed to be able to, to both manage the emotional power of the mm-hmm. music and the intellectual power mm-hmm. of the music. He didn't have to sacrifice one exactly. kind of on the altar of the other. Yeah. And the other thing that, that relates more directly uh, to you and to what you were just saying about reaching the audience is the story behind the title of this uh, double album, mm-hmm. which, I think it's a very nice story, and I think it speaks exactly to what you were just talking about. Can you tell yeah. that story about how the album came to be named? Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, there's. Uh, I've I've read some uh, some slight misinterpretations of the title. <laughs> <laughs> People love to put their own their own spin on things without like really um, checking out what the the person is trying to say. Um, when I say triumph of the heavy, I am not talking about myself. <laughs> I am talking about a collective of music that's not just limited to jazz. I'm talking about, um, music that you're not, um, <clears throat> that's not thrown in your face on these, uh, these major rec- uh, radio stations, uh, 24 seven, uh, by people who, who have paid for the placement. <laughs> You know, I'm talking about music that's uh, considered underground, uh, that's not uh, as commercialized or or watered down as uh, as the stuff that is said to be more accessible. Um, and to me, the word accessible used in music means um, cheap. <laughs> it's like, how can we get? Somebody who doesn't, who hardly has any talent <laughs> and make a fortune off of that person won't make it accessible. <laughs> you know, that's what it means to me. And, um, I think the only reason, you, you know, like a lot, many people have been doing this. It's all over Facebook. It's all over Twitter and everything. People are wondering, they're like, why is it that people had so much better? taste in music back then and now people don't have that that good taste now i don't think the change was in the people i think the change was in um the people who were presenting the music um they started presenting it in a in a cheap way <laughs> uh that didn't require as much development 
as much um uh investment as much risk uh as uh as it used to uh require you know this uh you know the 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 a very good example of that is the group uh a tribe called quest um <laughs> which funnily enough is what i was listening to before stevie is that, part of my walk over. Per- yeah <laughs> Very. That's a very good example of uh, of a group that developed and were and they were about the craft. Um, that does that hardly exists in in the rap world now. <laughs> that hardly exists. Uh, it takes time, and also it's a miraculous thing. These guys um, coming from where they came from and getting together and forming this incredible sound was a miraculous thing that doesn't happen that often but what does happen often is you can spot some cat in the mall who looks like what you want to sell and then you you just place whatever sound you want on that and say okay we're going to sell this and we're going to shove it into people's faces with airtime so that they have no chance you know, to really think about it is, is they know the song. Right. <laughs> it's just there, you know, um, that does not take as much investment as developing a group such as tribe called quest. It took, I think it took until their fifth album until things really started going, <laughs> you know, for them. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how so many people are, they're, they're like, wow, I, you know, the taste has changed. I don't think the taste has changed. I think they just have, most people haven't been exposed to the kind of music that I'm exposed to. It, it requires much more effort to get to, to, to get this music. You have to really know what to look for. Um, you have to have a more in-depth, uh, knowledge of the music in order to, to find this music. Um, so if it wasn't that much of a, of a struggle just just to find the music uh i think just as many people would be listening to to this uh this music that i that i coined as heavy <laughs> yeah yeah it seems kind of analogous to mm-hmm. uh like finding out about what's going on in the world you can either like watch the nightly news or hear you know talk radio on your way into work or whatever and you'll mm-hmm. have one incredibly narrow set of facts or you can spend the time, you know, mm. reading foreign papers online and yeah. looking on the web, but that takes a lot of work. Exactly. And it's a lot easier to not do that. Yeah. Than to do that. Exactly. And therefore you go through the world with a narrow mm-hmm. <laughs> a very narrow worldview. <laughs> exactly. And and uh if I'm not mistaken, there was a comment that your girlfriend made mm-hmm. while you guys were listening to music together. Definitely. Th- that kind of show showcased this and led to the it definitely, think about this yeah, concept, right? that that definitely that led to all this madness. Will you tell that <laughs> tell that story? Uh, so I was, uh, you know, I it was close to the beginning of my relationship with uh, with my my girlfriend, my current girlfriend, and probably soon to be wife, <laughs> Dawn. Breaking news. <laughs> and here she is, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, she. Uh, yeah, we we we're you know we were driving around a lot, and I was I I noticed that she wasn't um she wasn't playing her own music on the stereo. I was always playing my music, and uh, it's probably because I'm more aggressive about it. Because you know, it, as soon as I get in the car, I want to put my own soundtrack <laughs> right on the ride. Um, so you know, I realized this. I was like, hey, why don't we listen to your iPod? And uh, she was like, okay. And she puts on her iPod, and I'm not gonna say who who came on. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put them out there like that. But uh, that person, they their music came on, and her immediate immediate reaction was, "Wow, this sounds so light <laughs> compared to the stuff that you've been playing." You know, I, and I wasn't just playing jazz. I was playing some R&B, I was playing some Stevie, I was playing some some electronica, I was playing all kinds of music. Um but just good music. <laughs> you know, that was the only categorization. And uh you know, she it, it's just immediately she knew 
she was like, the light bulb went off in her head. She was like, that's the difference. That's why you guys are so snobby. <laughs> because she became a snob <laughs> at that point. <laughs> uh, another one joins the club. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's okay if we get them one at a time. That's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it really speaks to the truth of what you were saying earlier that it's that as soon as people get exposed to good music, mm-hmm. it is possible for people with, and I don't know what level of musical training Don does or doesn't have, but it's mm-hmm. possible with people of any level of musical training yeah. to instantly understand yeah. the difference between good and, exactly. good and bad music. Exactly. And it's, you know, and it's also, you know, I, I think that stuff is, I think it goes, you know, it's on, it's on both sides too. I think the, I think musicians, we can, we can make our stuff, um, we can make our music in a way that grabs people and st- sticks with people, um, without dumbing it down. <laughs> you know, uh, some people, they, they can't stand holding out a note. <laughs> You're like, wow, I held out a note for, for more than two bars. I have to show off the chops that I'm doing. It's like, dude, do that in the solo. <laughs> you don't have to do that on the melody. <laughs> you know, make a melody. Sing. It's all right to sing. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. You know, um, and, uh, you know, I know it's uh, becoming a, more of my opinion and all that stuff. But this is just, I'm just stating uh, how I operate. You know, it's I have to choose a side. <laughs> sure. Especially if you're going to be an artist. You have to have um, discretion. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the discretion that I go with. I'm, that's, that's kind of, uh, how I, how I police myself so that, um, I can stay in touch with the people. Cause that's, that's my whole purpose. I, that's all I'm thinking about. I want to touch people out there. You know, it's not about showing off what I can do. <laughs> you know, there's 15 other saxophones that could get up and play faster than me. <laughs> It's not about that. It's about um, touching people. That's that's what I'm trying to get to. My guest is Marcus Strickland, and his new two CD set is called Triumph of the Heavy Volumes One and Two. And I'm I'm so glad we finally had the chance to do this, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having. That's music from saxophonist Marcus Strickland and his new double album, Triumph of the Heavy, Volumes 1 and 2. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member and keep the show going. You can do it at thejazzsession.com slash join. And in the meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.